All right. Well, it's good to see all of you here today. Welcome back. If you're here last week, it's good to have you back again. And actually, it's kind of awkward way to start a message, but I kind of, you know, last week I was so excited for my message. I thought it was a really, really good one. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> but there's part of one during I gave my message, there's part of it I figured I didn't do a good job explaining how do you do these hard things that God calls you to do. I mean, for example, how do you lay down your life? How do you lay down your life, and how do you carry your cross and follow Jesus? That is a huge ask. And so I recognize that part of the message was great last week because I talked about surrendering your life and what it means to, but I kind of forgot that part about how do you really do some of these hard things. And so today I kind of want to talk about these hard things because the truth is none of us would be, are able to do anything that the Bible calls us to do. None of us have the ability or the capability or the determination or the drive to lay down our life and to deny ourselves and follow Christ. None of us have that ability on our own. And that's the good news of the message, is that we don't have it, but God has the ability to do it. And because God has the ability, he's going to give us that ability to do things we never, ever thought possible. So I want to introduce to you a new series just called He Came. And talk about the reasons why did Christ come and what was Christ's plan to do when he came to this earth. So the next few weeks, I want to actually talk about um, recognizing what Christ came to do because you know what? It gives us a big peace of mind when we can sit back and recognize what Christ came to do because what he comes to do, then we don't have to do it. So it's just kind of a peaceful series, a peaceful message as we begin to enter the summer. So we're going to talk about things like how do you lay down your life and follow him? And how do you surrender when you're trying to overcome an addiction or maybe overcome a pattern in your life or maybe overcome temptation or maybe you struggle with shame or guilt and condemnation? How do you get over these things? See, this is the good news of Jesus Christ is that he came to do for us everything that we can't do. So the next few weeks, I just want to really dive deep into what does it mean that Jesus came to do these things. So today, my message is called, He Came to Serve the Helpless. I want to talk about this verse in particular, verse Mark 10, verse 45. It says, Then, calling the crowd to join his disciples, Jesus said, If any of you wants to be my followers, you must give up your own way. Take up your cross and follow me. That's not the verse. Okay. I want Mark 10.45. There we go. <laughs> I really confused you all. All right, this is kind of the, the, the verse I really want to highlight today. I really want to talk about Mark 10, verse 45, that said, For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve others and give his life as a ransom for many. We're going to talk about the verses before this and after it, but I want to really highlight on this verse because I think this verse is an incredibly powerful verse that really carries a lot of depth of what is the gospel message of Jesus Christ all about. So I want to walk away today, and I hope all of us have a better understanding of how we can do what Christ has called us to do. And in order for us to understand how we can do what Christ has called us to do, we need to understand what does it mean that Jesus came to serve us? And number two, what does it mean that Jesus gave his life as a ransom for us? And the third thing is, what is the connection between Christ serving us and our ability to do what he's called to do? 
So that's kind of a, the goal for today and how we're going to get to that goal. So some of you know, when I, I, Becky and I have been married for about 23 years, and um, I got a lot of perks when I married Becky. I got a wonderful wife who takes care of me. She just said, you did. Who <laughs> <laughs> sits in the front row and takes care of me. She, uh, full disclosure, she helped me through seminary, so none of my weaknesses is a real surprise to her about doing this, and she probably should have got me tutor in seminary, so she wouldn't have to help me so much. But so I got a lot of perks when I married Becky, but another perk that I got, well, I got wonderful in-laws, and you know, I'm one of the guys that can say I do love my in-laws, but I also got a perk of flying first class. See, Becky's dad was an international traveler. He wrote many books. He was one of my professors at Fuller, and he was also a leader in the area of church growth and leadership. And so the man literally traveled more, more time than not. He was usually gone more than he was at home, and most of his travel was international. So the guy just had a bank account of miles that was through the roof. He probably had more miles at times in his account than probably most of us will have dollars in our 401k. That's just how it works when you travel a lot and you get a lot of multiple miles. So being the perk of being a son-in-law is I often, we would, if we travel the United Airlines, we traveled for free because we used his miles. Or if we didn't travel on his miles and we bought a ticket on United Airlines, he would usually call the airline the night before and say, my son-in-law and daughter are flying tomorrow, can you bump them up? And so for us to fly first class was kind of common, or business class was kind of common. And you know, boarding a plane with three little kids was going to the front row in the first class, that, that's fun. I love flying first class. I hate flying in the rest of the back of the plane. I got spoiled. I don't get to do that anymore. But you know, first class, you know, the, the best part of first class is you don't wait in line. You just board the plane when you want to. You get off first. Your luggage is waiting for you. You get food whenever you want it. And you get those hot little towels. When you get on the plane, nice little towels before and after. That's the good life, flying first class. Seriously, now I think of it, all those little PRL dispensers everywhere, you should get rid of those and just have hot towels. People would be a lot happier in the world. So that was fun to fly first class. And so I think a lot of times when I think about being served, I think about first class. I think about getting whatever I want, when I want it, and however much I want of it. Some of you probably think about first class as, as service, or some of you think when you talk about service, you think about going to a really good restaurant and getting incredibly good service. So I think we all have a paradigm of what it means to be served. And I think Jesus, when he says in Mark 10 that he comes to give us to serve us, it kind of, we need to have a little different of a paradigm for what it means to be served by Jesus. Because two of Jesus' disciples, James and John, seem to have the idea that following Jesus is, looks a little bit more like first-class travel. That you just kind of give your request to Jesus, and he's up there to just say, okay, here you go, you can have it. So I want to read through Mark 10, verse 35 to 45, to kind of give a little context of what this is all about that Jesus came to serve us. So then James and John, son of Zebedee, came over and spoke to Jesus. Teacher, they said, we want you to do us a favor. What is your request, Jesus asked. They replied, when you sit on your glorious throne, we want to sit in places of honor next to you, one on your right and the other on your left. But Jesus said to them, you don't even know what you're asking. Are you able to drink from the bitter cup of suffering I'm about to drink? 
Are you able to be baptized with the baptism of suffering I must be baptized with? Oh, yes, they replied, we are able. Then Jesus told them, you will indeed drink from my bitter cup and be baptized with the baptism of suffering. But I have no right to say who will sit on my right or my left. God has prepared those places for the ones he has chosen. Then the ten other disciples heard what Jesus and heard what James and John had said, they were indignant. So Jesus called them together and said, you know that the rulers, rulers in this world lord it over their people, and officials flaunt their authority over those under them. But among you, it will be different. Whoever wants to be a leader among you must also be your servant. And whoever wants to be first among you must be a slave to everyone else. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve others and to give his life as a ransom for many. So what does all of this mean? I think at first glance, this kind of appears like a disjointed little section of Scripture. You have James and John that come out first with this awkward question that, you know, our translation said, we want you to do us a favor. Other translations will say, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. Seems kind of a little bit of a quirky way to kind of start out this section of Scripture, and then you ended up with the Son of God came to serve. What does all this mean, and how is this all connected to each other? See, I think James and John kind of have this idea that following Jesus is going to be this first-class flight. And they just simply get their request in, and Jesus is going to say, okay, here, whatever you want, I'm just going to do it for you. So before we jump into this, I want to talk about before this section of Scripture, Jesus is talking to his disciples about what he's, what's going to happen to him. He's telling his disciples that he's about ready to uh, go into Jerusalem and that he is going to be betrayed. And that he's going to be sentenced to die and he's going to be handed over to the Roman Empire, the Roman officials. He tells his disciples that he's going to be mocked, he's going to be flogged, he's going to be spit on, and then ultimately he's going to die. And then three days later he's going to rise from the dead. So Jesus explains this huge situation that he's going to go to, through to his disciples about the pain and the agony and the suffering he's going to go through. And you would think the disciples would say, why are you going to do that? Why? But instead, his disciples kind of jump to, well, what are we going to get out of this? And so they kind of get their request in quickly. And it's kind of like James and John are kind of a little bit clueless to why Jesus is actually going to die. They really don't understand why he has come, and they don't understand how that is going to impact their life. Instead, they're kind of really concerned with what are they going to get. They're kind of more concerned with kind of importance. They're a little bit more concerned with what kind of position that they are going to get in life. Now, one thing that they did have right is they do understand that Jesus is the king, and that he is going to sit on a throne, and that he's going to rule the world. So they got that part of the equation right, which is a good thing to have right. So this is kind of one of those Bible stories where you have the disciples understanding half of what's going on, not at all, and part of it they understand right. They understand that Jesus is the king and that he's going to rule the world, and that actually is a good place to start out from. So you can kind of a 
tip your hats to them that they understood that part. But the rest of the story, they really don't seem to understand. In fact, when Matthew tells the story, he's not as nice as Mark. Matthew tells the story, and it says they sent their mother to Jesus to say to Jesus, hey, could my sons be on your right and left? And that's just strange. I mean, who asked the mother to go talk to Jesus for your position? I mean, that's kind of like if you got cut from the basketball team in high school and asking your mom to go talk to the coach and see if she could get you back. And you just don't do that. But here these guys are all worried about their position. They're all worried about who is going to be the most powerful. And so it's kind of like they totally are not catching on to a couple chapters earlier in Mark 8 where Jesus was saying to his followers, he says, if you want to be my follower, you must give up your own way. You need to take up your cross and follow me. And so these guys don't really have any idea of why Jesus is on earth or what he came to do. So Jesus is going to use a, an, a, a, an analogy. He's going, to, he's going to use two metaphors to explain to his disciples what, what's good about to happen. He's going to talk about a cup and about baptism. And see, when we think about a cup and a baptism, we kind of go to our New Testament paradigm. We kind of think about participating in communion or getting baptized as you become a believer. But for the disciples at that point in time, they were probably thinking a little bit more Old Testament tradition of what did a cup mean. And in the Old Testament time, a cup, drinking from a cup, was actually a sign of your upcoming death. And so Jesus is kind of using that metaphor of a cup signifying your upcoming death, but not so much your physical death as much as your spiritual surrendering completely over to Jesus. Kind of that's the illustration of what a cup would mean. And the baptism of suffering means that you're going to participate and things are going to happen to you that, that you know, maybe it's not going to be the best thing for your reputation. People aren't probably going to like that part of you. And so Jesus is kind of trying to help these disciples understand that following him is not just this easy first-class flight, but there's going to be some giving up, and there's a potential that you're going to be mocked and you're going to be ridiculed, and some people aren't actually going to like you very much if you become really honest that you are a follower of Jesus. So the disciples, they hear that again about the cup and the baptism, and you'd expect some questions, but instead they jump forward and say, sure, we can do it. Sure, we can do that. And so you appreciate their, their, their enthusiasm, but it's a little bit like Peter that we talked about the last couple of weeks where Jesus says to Peter, you're going to deny me, and it's like Peter's totally clueless to understand what Jesus is saying. So we have these disciples that are filled with enthusiasm. They just agreed that they are going to take from the cup of suffering and from the baptism of suffering. And so Jesus kind of responds to him and says, okay, you will. So then Jesus repeats to him again, okay, this is what you're getting into. This is what you're getting into. And he repeats to them again about the cup of suffering, about the baptism, about maybe the potential for persecution, and the potential of you have to give up your life. You have to deny your life. And he's explaining that all to the disciples again. And then the other disciples, the other ten, start kind of wondering, what's going on here? And this, the text says they get a little indignant. It's like they're getting a little annoyed that the other disciples are asking for places of honor. And I think suddenly Jesus now has a room full of 12 guys all wondering, what is their position going to be after Jesus dies? And so Jesus is going to start teaching them something really radically different. 
He looks at the 12 guys and says, okay, um, how you see the world and how the world leads is going to be completely different from the way we're going to do it. No longer are we going to be the leader that's going to have a bunch of servants serving us and taking care of any, every one of our needs. Instead, if we're going to be the leaders, we're going to serve other people. And we're going to put other people first. And so Jesus is bringing up this whole idea of being a leader. You have to be a servant. And you have to be a slave. First, he brings up cup and baptism and suffering, now servant and slave. And I think the disciples were probably sitting back going, this is completely different from what we ever expected. Because we thought in order to be great in the kingdom of God, everybody's going to be serving us and they're going to be taking care of us. And Jesus is kind of laying out this message and saying, no, it's not at all the way you think it is. Because Jesus is showing his disciples that what you need to do is know how to love. You need to know how to love other people. You're going to have to put other people first in your life. And that's kind of a different concept to be a leader back in the first century. It's a whole new paradigm of looking at leadership. So now we come up to our verse. Jesus just explained to him, giving you a new concept, and then he comes back to the verse, Mark 10, verse 45, and says, okay, I didn't come to be served. The one thing that James and John understood is that Jesus is the king who's going to rule, and the first thing he says is, I'm not the king who's going to be served, but I'm going to serve you, and I'm going to give my life as a ransom for many. That was a totally different thought to these disciples. And I think in this verse is kind of one of those verses in the Bible. If you really kind of, if there's only one verse you're ever going to read, this is a really good one to really understand. Because there's so much significance in here of what Christ wants to do for each of us. So I think the best place to do is start out, what does Jesus mean by saying, I'm going to serve you? What does that mean? The word serve comes from the Greek word deacon, which means to wait on tables, to care for the needs of other people. It basically means to supply food and drink and the necessities for life. We know all through when Jesus, um, well, all through Scripture, we see this whole, this whole imagery of Jesus or God inviting you to a table. To come to a table and sit down at the table and to have fellowship with God. And Jesus is now saying, yeah, you're invited to the table. And when you come to the table, I'm going to be the one serving you. I'm going to be the deacon. Or I'm going to be the waiter. I'm going to be the waitress, and I'm going to take care of every single one of your needs when you come to the table. And See, when we talk about getting invited to a table, I think suddenly we think, well, then I'm going to order whatever I want. What am I going to get? And I think at times like this, sometimes we come before Jesus and saying, okay, what do I want? What am I going to get? It's good to remember Jesus' words that he said to James and John. He says, you really don't know what you're asking for. I think sometimes in my own prayer life, when I'm, I think Jesus would probably reply, like, you're, you really don't know what you're asking for. I think that imagery of Jesus coming to serve us at the table is too the imagery of Jesus knows what we need. And he knows best what we need. And it's that invitation to surrender and receive all that Jesus has for us. Because I think we need to understand something that James and John didn't understand very well. 
they didn't understand their limitations. See, every time that Jesus asks us to do something, he knows we can't do it. See, every time Jesus asks us to do something or to sacrifice something or to surrender something, he knows we don't have the capability. He knows if he's going to ask us to do something, he's going to have to do it for us. So an invitation from Jesus to be obedient or to make a sacrifice is always an invitation for Jesus to serve us. See, in other words, if Jesus is going to ask you to do something like deny yourself or to carry your cross or to serve others or to stop a behavior or maybe stop an addiction or stop a pattern or stop worrying or stop being consumed with something, if he's asking you to do something like that, it's always an opportunity for Jesus to say, I am going to serve you. And it's an opportunity for us to reply back to Jesus and say, I cannot do what you are asking me to do. That's too difficult. But I know you can do it. So I am going to surrender to you and I'm going to allow you to carry my burdens and to give me the strength. See, that's what surrendering to Jesus is all about, is simply admitting that you can't do it, and you don't have the ability, and you really lack the motivation, and you sometimes lack the drive, and you lack the determination, and you lack the consistency, but you know God can do it. And so surrendering is just acknowledging your helplessness and asking God to do for you what he wants to do for you anyway. And that's why Jesus came to serve the helpless. Because he came to serve people that can't take care of themselves. But I think sometimes when we think of Christ serving the helpless, we think of a person that has no money or maybe doesn't have a home or they have physical challenges where they can't work or they can't provide for themselves. We think of people like that. We think of people that are marginalized and, 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 and need somebody to take care of 100% of their needs. But what the scripture wants us to understand is that we all are the helpless ones. Every single one of us is helpless. See, not one of us here determined when we were going to be born. Not one of us here has a plan to get ourselves out of a, a sin or a sin pattern. None of us has the ability to figure out how to get set free from sin or from patterns or from shame or guilt or condemnation. And see, apart from Jesus Christ, eternal life is not available to anybody. And see, that's why we're helpless. We have no control over our future and over our past and over our present situation. There's nothing I can do to change my past. 
There's nothing I can do to, to give me peace for today. And there's nothing I can do to give me hope for tomorrow. I have none of that ability. And that's why I'm helpless. And that's why it's comforting to recognize that you are helpless because it brings you to the place of saying, I need somebody to help me. So why is it sometimes so hard to receive from Jesus? See, I think the reason is we're not good at being like a child. See, in Mark 10, verse 15, just 20 or so verses earlier, Jesus says, disciples, truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall never enter it. Jesus is saying part of being and receiving all that Jesus has for us, being served by Jesus, is you have to come like a child. What does he mean you come by a child? See, in this verse, a child is someone who's seven years or younger. It refers to an infant. It refers to a small child. And what you know about a child or an infant is they need somebody to take care of them 24 hours a day, seven days a week. A child or an infant needs constant care. You cannot leave an infant alone and expect them to do well on their own. And that's what Jesus is saying. Come to me like that child who is dependent on me for every single need that you're dependent on God to take care of you, to provide shelter for you, to provide clothing for you, to provide house for you, to provide food for you, to provide nourishment for you. That is what Jesus is saying the normal Christian life is all about. Relying on Jesus to supply every single thing we need. That's not just an attitude we have when we come to Jesus as a brand new Christian. That's an attitude we have about Jesus every single day of our life, that we come to him hopeless and completely dependent on him to take care of every one of our needs. And this is what's unique about a baby. They have no negotiating power. A baby can't say to your parents, okay, you take care of me today. You provide me food, and I'm going to do something in return to you. No, that child has nothing to offer. They need complete care. And that's how Jesus says, I want you to think about yourself. You're not going to have to do anything for me. I'm going to do it all for you. I'm going to take care of all of you. And some of you might be thinking, well, that doesn't make sense. Paul does talk about him being a servant of Jesus Christ. So in some way, we do serve. See, when Paul talks about being a servant of Jesus Christ, it simply means I surrender to Jesus Christ every day. That's all I have to do. All I have to do is surrender and then watch how Jesus takes care of the rest of the things for me. See, when I surrender to Jesus, I just say, Jesus, I can't do this, and I give you an invitation to have more control over my life. See, two can't run a life. Jesus wants me to completely surrender so he can completely be in charge of my life. And that's the peace that we have. I think sometimes we think I can't surrender to completely to Jesus until I can do it on my own. Some of us are waiting to surrender until we have the ability to do it on our own. And that really doesn't make a whole lot of sense because you can never do it on your own. The time to surrender is now when you can't do it because you'll never be able to do it. And that's Jesus' constant invitation to us. Whatever you're facing, 
whatever difficulties ahead of you, whatever challenge that you're facing, just surrender to Jesus and say, I can't do it, but you can do it. And I know sometimes you think that's too easy, Jack. That's too easy of a plan. Just surrender. What about my part? Yeah, you do have a part. You just follow. You surrender and you just trust that Jesus is going to give you the ability, the capability, the drive, the determination, whatever you need to follow him, he is going to take care of that. Some of you might wonder, well, why is he going to do all this? Why would Jesus want to serve me so well? Why does he have such an interest in taking care of my needs? Why does he want to do this? Because I think sometime in our mind we think, i got to prove it to him that I love him. i got to prove these things to him. Why is Jesus now saying, uh-uh, flip what you're thinking. I'm going to serve you. Why does Jesus think that way? See, we need to understand what it means when Jesus says, I give my life as a ransom for many. When Jesus talks about ransom, it's talking about the money that's used to purchase a slave. And what Jesus is saying, I'm the money that's going to purchase a slave. My life is the money. I am the commodity that is going to purchase you. The whole idea of ransoming is to liberate someone from misery and the penalty of their sins. And the word implies setting somebody free. And that's what Jesus is saying he's coming to do, that he is going to set you free because he is purchasing you. See, one of the hard realities of Christianity is the fact that you are either owned by the devil or you are owned by Jesus Christ. Your ownership goes one or two different ways. There's no middle zone. And what Jesus says when he comes to purchase you is he purchased you from the grips of Satan. He purchased you from the grips of darkness, and now you belong to him. And because Christ has purchased you, you don't have to worry about your past. You don't have to worry about how you're going to make it through today. And you don't have to worry about what's going to happen to you in the future. Because you are owned by Jesus Christ, that is his problem. That's not your problem. It's his problem to figure out how he's going to sort through your past and get you through today and give you hope for tomorrow. I love how Paul David Tripp says this. He just, it's so eloquent. He says, you don't have to worry about these things, meaning your past and your present and your future. For one simple transformative reason, you don't belong to you anymore. You have been bought with a price. Your life is under new ownership and new management. You're under a new owner. You're under new management. And that's a relief. Because every stupid thing I did, it's the new owner's responsibility to help get me through that. It's the new owner's responsibility to lead me through that. He knew what he was getting into when he purchased me. That wasn't a surprise to him. It wasn't a surprise to him what I'm going to do tomorrow. It's not a surprise to him what I'm going to do next week. But he purchased me anyway because he wanted to be the one responsible for my life. And that's the comfort that we can have that Jesus wants to serve us because he wants to serve us well. He has an investment in us. That's the confidence that we can have 
that our owner, our new manager, wants to do the very best for us. And that's the reason that we can celebrate that Jesus came to serve us. See, that makes me then want to be a better person and to serve others. That motivation that comes from God serving me well. So Jesus just gets done explaining this new concept to his disciples, explaining this whole new idea of serving and what it means to be under new ownership and under new management. And they're walking down the street, and then comes a story about a blind man named Bartimaeus. And God is going to use this section of Scripture, I think, to teach the disciples at least two things. I think he's going to show them, how do you come to Jesus? What kind of attitude do you use when you come to Jesus? And second, how do you, and maybe it'll give us a little bit of a glimpse into understanding how Jesus decides what prayer requests to answer. I know that sounds kind of strange saying it that way, but I think I want you to kind of see a little bit of an understanding of Jesus' motivation and how he serves us. So let's read through Mark 10, verse 46 through 52. It says, And then they came to Jericho, and as he was leaving Jericho with his disciples and a great crowd, Bartimaeus, a blind beggar, the son of Timaeus, was sitting up by the roadside. And when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out, saying, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on, on me. And many rebuked him, telling him to be silent. But he cried out all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and said, and called them. And they called the blind man, saying to him, Take heart, get up, he is calling you. And throwing off his cloak, he sprang up and came to Jesus. And Jesus said to him, What do you want me to do for you? And the blind man said to him, Rabbi, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, Go your way. Your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him on the way. I think this is such an interesting section of Scripture. I think it's interesting on one hand because Jesus says to the blind man, what can I do for you? You don't expect Jesus to say that for a blind man. You kind of like, Jesus, it's kind of obvious what this guy needs. Why does he actually tell you what he needs? It's kind of obvious here. But you see the parallel between James and John coming to Jesus. They come to Jesus and say, hey, will you do whatever we ask? In fact, they're just kind of saying, would, would you just do it? Do whatever we ask. We, don't, we, we, we want you just to agree to that before we even ask you what you want. And then you have the blind man. He comes to Jesus and he says, I need your mercy. One is coming asking for power and asking for glory. The other man is coming and he's asking for mercy. See, a plea to God asking for mercy is saying, God, would you withhold the judgment that I deserve Instead, would you give me forgiveness? Would you give me forgiveness that I have not earned? So mercy is just asking God, would you withhold, withhold what I deserve and instead give me what I don't deserve? And that's what the blind man is calling out to Jesus for. He's saying, that's what I need from you. I need forgiveness. I need your mercy. So, the text tells us that when Jesus said to the man, he said, okay, what can I do for you? It says that his, it, the man asked for his sight, and his sight was returned. And then what did the man do? 
he got up and he started following Jesus immediately. And that's how Jesus served this man. He restored his sight, but he's restored this man's sight so this man could follow Jesus. The man asked for forgiveness, and he asked for mercy. And Jesus restored his sight so he could follow Jesus. See, before that man was a beggar in that society, he just, he, he just probably went on the streets every day and hoped he had enough money to maybe take care of his needs, but he had nobody to take care of him. He had no ownership. He had no one to provide for him. He was left on the streets. There's probably no, there's no social security structure at that time to take care of this man's needs. He was completely helpless and on his own. And he came to Jesus recognizing that he was helpless and asked Jesus to have mercy on him, to help him. So how does Jesus serve him? Jesus serves this man by removing any barriers that would prevent this man from following Jesus. And I think that's what we can see in this passage, how Jesus answered this man's prayer request. He removed any barriers that would prevent this man from totally following him. And I think that's the confidence we can have when, we be, when Christ is serving us, that he's going to remove anything, any barriers in our life that would prevent us from having a relationship with him. And I think there's sometimes we say, Jesus, there's a few more things that you could remove along the way. But I think part of us is having the confidence that Jesus is always going to serve us well. And he will remove from our life what needs to be removed, but he will let stay in our life what needs to stay there. Also, we can follow him more each day. That's the confidence I have when I read Mark 10, is that Jesus is going to serve me. And he's going to serve me well. And he knows what I need, and he knows what I don't need. And I think I'm a little bit like James and John at the time. I get those, what I need and what he thinks I need, a little confused. But it's a confidence I can have that Jesus is going to serve me well. Because I'm his. And he bought me. And he purchased me. And he did it because he loves me. And he loves you. And he's okay with your past. And he's okay with what you're dealing with today. And he's okay with what you may stumble over in the future. But all he asks is just surrender. Just surrender. Surrender your problems, your anxieties, your doubt, your confusion. What is holding you back? Maybe it's your insecurities. I don't know what it is. But today I want to invite you to come have communion today. We're going to come forward and have communion, and we'll take the bread and the wine. And just remember that Jesus is serving us, saying, this is my body, and this is my blood. And I'm giving you them to nourish you, to strengthen you. That Jesus is the deacon that is here today saying, I'm going to provide for you the necessities that you need in life. I will supply every single thing that you need. So if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, I invite you to come forward and, and let our elders, Ron and Tom, serve you today the communion.
And remember that as you drink and you eat, that Jesus is saying, I'm going to serve you. I'm going to nourish you. You don't have to worry about that. I'm going to take care of it. So may it be a time of surrender. And maybe you want to sit in your chair a little bit. I'll have the worship team come up and maybe a little background music and Ron and Tom will serve them first. And maybe you want to reflect a little bit and just pray a little bit and, and just ask God. Maybe someday you need to surrender your ability that you can't surrender very well. And maybe that's your starting point. God, I don't know how to surrender, but I'm going to surrender that to you. And maybe come forward today with maybe a new enthusiasm or a new optimism that Jesus wants to serve you well.